Hi, Book Club members. I'm Jen. And I'm Carrie. And this is Warhammer 40k Book Club, where we read from a crack. This is episode number 47. And our book is The Deacon of Wounds by David Annandale. The book is about an archdeacon who comes to power on a, uh, a planet that's going through a rough patch. Oh, is, is that what we're calling it? Oh, it's a rough patch. Uh, we posted several questions on our site, wh40kbookclub.com, and we encourage participation in our discussions via Twitter, YouTube, our site, or Encrypted Box channel. Spoiler warning. If you haven't yet read this book, go to the site, check out the book and questions, and come back here as we're going to be discussing it in great detail. Additionally, I wouldn't be eating during this podcast. That's all I'm going to say. With that, let's dive in. So, did you like the book? I did like the book. I wish I hadn't sat and read it all in one day, just because um, I had to eat in there. That's the only reason why. <laughs> and I had uh, lo mein for lunch, so there you go. Mistakes were made. Mistakes were made. I, you know what, though? Like, when I, because I texted you at a certain point in this book and was like, okay, our bylines need to be the worm scrolling, the worm scrolling. Like, I feel like that should have maybe been a hint. Like, do not ingest lo mein or spaghetti. Okay. Or well, I already know it's going to be my lunch. I'm reading the book. I get to page 104. Mm -hmm. The page 104. I'm just like, the page. Okay. None of this is okay. Like not eat a little bit, but I'm really hungry and I have to eat. <laughs> I read that scene on an airplane and it was so hard because I'm sitting there and I'm just like, because <laughs> I'm reading it just the whole time. Like, and yeah, like trying to act cool though. At the same time, I was glad that I had a mask on though, because so people couldn't see me just like <laughs> lots of uh, grimaces and uh. lots of facial, <laughs> facial movement, lots of facial movement. Um, I really really liked this book though uh body horror is one of those really really difficult genres especially in books uh in movies it's it's a very tricky thing because you have like all of the classics from the 80s like the cronenberg ones specifically jeff goldblum the fly i think that book i think that movie is a really good example of walking right along the line of like, we're about to go into ridiculousness and just irritation, but not quite. Um, John Carpenter's The Thing is, of course, like the equivalent of an Urtext, like an Ur movie. I don't know if you say that for really well done. But a lot of times, like Tetsuo, the Iron Man, I think goes way over into grotesque ridiculousness where you're just like, oh. as my husband said about this book, miss me with that. Um, Books, though, like body horror books are really difficult because I feel as though a lot of them are kind of like, oh, I guess that's body horror. Uh -uh. It's like really weak sauce or they just go into like it feels like a 13 year old wrote it where it's like the bloodening and things are exploding and it's like lame. Uh, although I'd ha I would actually have to say, though, that any Warhammer 40k book that involves the Death Guard has already walked into body horror. Yeah, very much so. But I swear to God, I feel like David Annandale just woke up one morning and was like, I'm going to show him how this is done. And just decided to write like this fantastic body horror book. Um, 
blah. We're going to talk a lot about some of the scenes. Probably this next question, which um, <clears throat> Dean stuck it out to you. Oh, I don't know. Page 104. <laughs> the fact that you just texted me 104 and I was like, oh, I know exactly where she is. Yeah. Like that doesn't happen very often in a book where you're like, page 89. And someone's like, oh, what happened to page 189? I just, I knew. Yeah. <laughs> I just knew. Yeah. I mean, <sighs> there's a lot of things I was expecting and that was not it. Um, I mean, we've seen some of these horror ideas before, like the very the first prologue had the whole incident with incident with the flies, and um, you know that that was pretty bad. But this was on something like on a whole different level. It was you know partly because there was so much of it going mm-hmm. on, but it's also in a very small confined space. Very much so. And I definitely want to talk more about that one in a second because I have so many thoughts on that scene. That scene is just amazing. One of the things I have to mention, though, is how much I loved when Rodigus appeared. Because Rodigus is always called the Rainfather or the Rainmaker. And I was always like... See? Something I never knew. I was like, why, though? Uh, Okay, so the only reason I know that is when I was looking, when I started painting some of the Death Guard figures, because they're really fun, I wanted to paint Kugoth. And so I was looking at all the different ones and they had Rodigus and they're like, oh, the rain father. And I was like, like, since when does Nurgle care about rain? I guess it kind of depends on your definition of rain. Which, of course, though, the only thing it can make me think of is if you've ever seen the really underrated movie from the early aughts, Bowfinger. They make this fake movie called Chubby Rain. And that's all I could think of there was when they were talking about these fat raindrops because... I had to think about something funny because it was really grossing me out. And him appearing, I was like, oh, oh, you poor simple man, Ambrose. Well, you know, I knew something was up and I had this feeling it was because of him because he was his pride was mounting too quickly I was like alright you're being played by somebody I know exactly what is going on like when he didn't report Rosarius's body and he was going to but then something told him not to I was like well there it is that's that's what's really going on whatever's telling you not to whatever's gotten into your head that's what that's what's actually going on I really liked seeing the inner workings of his mind though where he's like oh there's Rosarius's body but he's a really good fall guy for this like i can't like and just watching him mm-hmm. work from that i need to do the right thing but right and when he talks about going over to the servitors and <laughs> it's just like there's there's some debris over there i was like don't do the thing don't do the thing oh he did the thing <laughs> just a wood chipper like like right out of uh, fargo like right out of fargo <laughs> and that's your uh, friend there in the wood chipper it that scene too it was kind of funny because it was so i mean it was it was just very anticlimactic like the servitors are like yep into the wood chipper but then i thought it was red so funny everywhere that i got red everywhere and they freaked out made me think of mo <laughs> exactly <laughs> mo like unclean 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 <laughs> um and more ways than one my friends right so let's talk about because i think the morgue scene pretty much exam exemplifies why this is a really classic work of body horror 
Could you hear that scene? Yes. Like, I don't... I'm not Christopher Lee, so I don't know the sound of a man dying. But the sound of... That's one of my favorite stories about Christopher Lee. That man was a badass. Uh, but the, when they're describing, like, the boat, like the woman's head hitting the slab in oh. her arms. I could hear that scene. I couldn't hear and, that. Oh, I could hear I it. I was like, no, cracking. no, no. But it was the oh, flies. I could. I could hear that. Mm. Very much so. And the other thing that I could hear is when they talked about, and this is where body horror, this is why it's so well done. When he talks about their throats distending. And you could just hear that like noise that mm-hmm. frogs make. Just yeah, what is going on? <laughs> Anyways, that yes. scene and like the worms, like the eyeballs coming out, and worms are a trigger issue for me. Maggots and like carnivorous worms. Well, I mean that's just something that should not be in the <laughs> body. You know, just. That's like, you know, uh, I like looking at medical images and thing, and things like that. Yeah. I've always been into that stuff. But the first time I saw one where you could see a worm like wrapped in someone's body, you can see, you can see it because that's how close it is mm-hmm. and how long it is. And it's like, no, that's not okay. Not okay. Like uh, that movie, The Mummy. I know it's a silly movie, but that scene where the scarab beetle just burned oh, the right. guy's skin and went up. Like, that is not okay. <laughs> it's just, no. <laughs> when I was in high school, we had one of my, one of my, uh, I almost said coworkers, <laughs> one of my classmates, her older brother volunteered with Doctors Without Borders. And he came and he did this big presentation and he talked about being in... I want to say it was in Kenya, but yeah, I want to say it was either Kenya or Congo, but he talked about being there and he had these pictures. He was talking about how parasitic worms are a big problem. And he right. had a picture of them removing worms from a man's body in surgery. It looked like they had just pulled handfuls of spaghetti uh-huh. out of this man. Yeah. You guys, I was like 17. I can still see that image vividly. It, it scarred me so this book like reading this the whole time i was like it's like sentient spaghetti in somebody's body now Mm -hmm. anyways it's not okay um but it worked really well for this book right because i mean as soon as the worms started as soon as they started singing as worms do that was the part where I was like, oh, not only is this unquestionably some Nurgle stuff. Oh, dear. Well, as soon as I start crying worms, I was like, either this really is a plague. Or this is some Nurgle stuff. Just because my first thought with the worms, I was actually thinking of, um, you know, Dan Abnett's short story about the Inquisitor who died of brain worms. Oh, good point. That's actually what kind of thought of it. The only reason why I didn't lean into that too much was just the way that Lawrence died. It was too chaosy for that, for that to really be it. Especially with the flies. When you get me bring the flies in there, like I already know that's that's chaos all over it. Yes, but and um, the way that he was wrapped up like a mummy, like he was, he was. No, sorry, like he was in a chrysalis. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I was like, nice choice of was, words there, bucko. 
Oh, it was wonderful. I was actually fully expecting some like metamorphosis style thing going on there. Kind um, of did. Kind, kind of. of. But then, yeah, with the worms coming out, just. It's not okay. No. As you said, it's not okay. But I think this book also is a really good illustration because of this. I think it's a good illustration about the difference between Warhammer 40k horror and just Warhammer 40k. Right. A story about the Death Guard. Yeah. Exactly. Because it's like when you look at Lords of Silence, there's so much as you I think you'd said earlier, like there's like subtle body horror there already. Their spleens are hanging out of their bodies for God's sake. And they they slosh when they walk. That really messed me up. Um so they're already pretty horrific and pretty awful. So, but this definitely, and again, I think it might be because it was with regular human beings, right? They have, especially that frailty to them where, right. I mean, this, this plague was like that, right? You got it and you're pretty much killed. Which, right. Yeah. Which is like, well, that's, seems, I mean, the only thing I know of in the Warhammer 40k universe that goes that fast is some chaos shit. That's just kind of how, how it works, which already, you know, you knew that's what was going on in the very beginning with the flies and in that prologue and the shrouded person that he thought he saw, but never saw again. You knew that was some chaos stuff going on. And the sad thing about that with Lorenz was that I thought that that is what triggered him to suddenly become reclusive, that he became afraid, like agoraphobic in a way, just not leaving. But then you find out, you know, his last moments that, no, he was just an asshole. <laughs> I mean, there was nothing really cha- made him, you know, hoard everything and not care about anybody. He was just a jerk. That's just all there was to it. He was. But here's an interesting thing to ask about him. So what happens if Lorenz and Rosarius keep control Mm -hmm. of the planet? And this is one of those motifs that I always really like. Um, I think it was like two or three years ago now. The Great with Rachel Weiss and uh, Emma Stone. It did this really well. Where you're initially presented with a character who seems awful. Right. And Lorenz certainly was not a good person. He was corrupt, like in the traditional sense of the word. Right. With this like hoarding resources and money for him and the wealthy and really not caring about the common people. And yet, Mm -hmm. like when faced with that, here's the thing that I wonder with them keeping the ecclesiarchy basically walled in in this walled garden of theirs, they probably could have kept the plague, this horrible, awful plague sequestered. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the planet just dies from starvation and dehydration, which I know is awful. Well, yeah, but when they but they had to do that ceremony though, and it was the ashes that so conveniently spread it. Uh, yeah. So, but you know, so obviously the shrouded guy was gnosis. Up, yeah, it was looking for a victim. Mm-hmm. And he didn't see any way to get to Lorenz, I think. Because I think, yeah, I think that somewhere in Lorenz, I think because he was so miserly, 
he the road to hell is paved with good intentions right because Lorenz was so miserly like he kept it to himself right he gets sick and he's feeling awful and he had this horrible event but he kept inside his walled garden Mm -hmm. and he kept to himself and I don't I don't know if Rosarius would have been a good replacement for him like in terms of like the chaos and anarchy that Ambrose helps spread Right, because because uh, Rosarius would have again followed in his footsteps and kept everything in there and not done anything. So that's not really a way for Nurgle to get his foothold. But then Gnosis sees this in Ambrose, who goes to the garden and just sits in frustration. He's like, "Hmm, I think I know what I can do here." And again, like I said, is one of those the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And he wasn't very subtle about it. And if Ambrose really stopped to think about it, but I think this is one of those things that, you know, when they were talking about the plague and he was like, I have no idea what could cause this. It's just one of those things that just shows that maybe by not knowing about demons, you're doing more harm than good. Um, because that's the perfect way for these demons to get in there and be like, hey, you know, we can help. And it just was, you know, of course, it was so convenient that Gnosis was like, I happened to find this thing in the archives. Like, oh, here we go. And if if Ambrose could have looked past his own ambitions and what he felt was the emperor's purpose for him, he would have seen like, there's no way in hell something like this the emperor would ask for. This kind of ritual. Right. Like, because when does the emperor ever ask for human sacrifice? The answer is only in war. It's <laughs> not to say never, but only in war. The, you know, the psyker snacks that he gets every day. Yeah, okay. That's true. They're like cheesy poofs, but psychers and people. <laughs> yes, that is, that is very true. But you're absolutely correct. And I think that was one of the things that was really interesting, again, is that we see Lorenz, who's just... I mean, really, he and Rosarius are just your run-of-the-mill, corrupt, incompetent. Now, and it is a little unfair to call them incompetent because you're undergoing a drought. Like, what are you going to do? And they both did have a point that if they opened up the reserves, yes, these people would survive longer, but now they're all on a short waiting list. Exactly. And so, and that's, and Ambrose is wanting to help everybody and how humble he really was. This is something that's so easy for these chaos gods to latch on to if you're just not that careful. I don't know that I think he was really that humble. I think, I think he was mostly, but I think one of the things that I think with this book especially highlights is I think think there was a crack there and i think that nosos was able to prey on that ambition prey on that desire to be the savior the guy right i think with lorenz his whole thing is i just want to i just want to live a little bit longer and hoard mm-hmm. all my money and all of my like i just want to get off this planet there's nothing really there for nosos to exploit exactly right because mm-hmm. you're 
like it dies with you, dude. And Rosaria seemed to be very much that same way. So yes, not good people, but also not as easily corruptible by chaos. And I think Ambrose. But I love that though. It's so sad, but it's so sad how easy this is. But it's it's because these people are such good people and they just want to help it makes it 10 times easier for chaos to come in so it's like there's a benefits to being an ass <laughs> sadly i mean i can't argue with that yeah. there really is this benefit to being this horribly selfish person and in this case you just want to get off this planet and go find somewhere else and i was joking with my husband that this book is kind of like candyland um so <laughs> For people who are not aware, Candyland is a wholly unique board game because from the second that you deal the cards, like you shuffle the card deck, the winner is predetermined. Yes. There's no chance or anything like that. When you opened the cover of this book, this planet was dying. There was no saving this planet. If Lorenz stayed in power, they all die of dehydration and starvation. Ambrose taking over goes less than well. And I also like have to ask myself a little bit, what's better? Like, what's worse? Is it better to die miserable of starvation and dehydration? Or is it better to die in fear and actually being corrupted? Like, these people were terrified when they died. They went from what being miserable asking? to terrified. Death or death by exile. I mean, you're not helping here. <laughs> you know? Well, I guess, like, I'm trying to figure out, like, is there one that's worse than the which, other? Which I think is what honestly happens, like, so much. Like, even, like, in, so the last book that we read, when they were, the sisters were interrogating that, uh, that cultist. Mm hmm And she was explaining, she's like, we were starving. They offered us help. It's like, you should have died instead of help. Well, what choice is that? You know, die, you know, die by these, these hands or, or die, you know, maybe you'll die and maybe it'll be horrific. But so you take the chance that you won't be starving anymore. That's just part of it. And it's really hard to say like you should, you'd rather die. You should rather die than serve. Well, that's really easy for these pious sisters who get food to say. Right. Or the space marines even. Who get mm -hmm. food or don't really need food. Put it that way. They're not, they're not wondering where their next meal is coming from. No. And with the sisters, I think one of the things that they often neglect, because they live like in these perfect lives, mm -hmm. right? Where they don't have children they have to feed. They don't have a spouse they need to take care of. Like they are basically on an island of taking care of myself. And obviously my sister's alongside with me, but basically everything else is pretty much taken care of. Right. Just like the and Space Marines. I mean, they don't have very kids. Very much so. They're not married. It's got their brothers. No. It's cool. They've never had to look at their kid and explain, like, sorry, we're not eating tonight. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, so it's very easy for them to be like, well, obviously the correct choice was to die. Um, but it does come down to this core concept of Warhammer 40k that, to quote the beginning of the Young Adult series, life is hard in the 41st millennium. <laughs> And I actually like people made fun of that. And I love it because I'm like, girl, tell me <laughs> like it's, life is really hard. 
Um, and I think that comes to one of the pitfalls of the core centers of their beliefs, right? Like, and that's one of the things with the sisters that I kind of have to agree with, where it's like, if you believe like your soul goes to the side of the emperor when you die, it would have had you starved to death. But now no, <laughs> because now you're corrupted. Right. And with these guys, you are now the unquiet dead. What happened to that cultist soul as she went to the Sea of Souls? What happened? She was immediately torn apart by all these demons. So she never, so she's like going to live in eternity in agony, rest of her life. Instead of, well, and the rest like, of her soul existence, sort of. Exactly. Yeah. I always think of Spear of the Emperor, where she talks about how, um, where Honorata talks about how she definitely does not see that one woman being torn apart by the other spirits in the um, warp, mm. right? That's awful. And right. again, you really are the playthings for these laughing gods, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So, and that's one of the things too, where I'm just like, dude, had Ambrose not done anything, everybody would have starved and it would have been really awful and horrible. And yet you would not have been the unquiet dead and the playthings of chaos. Cause now this planet is now owned by Rodigus. And I'm sure, I'm sure he is going to be a really good leader. Well, I mean, if he's part of Nurgle's followings, he loves everybody. That is true. And he tends to be a little less dour than Kugoth. So party, party on Theo, Theotokos. Yes, Theotokos. Sure. Theotokos. I had to look back down at it because I was like, I'm, I'm going to leave out an O. There's a lot of O's in the name. But like, party on Theotokos. With Rodigus, your host. <laughs> yes. He's making it rain, y'all. He is making it rain. Thank you. Damn you. <laughs> I did to say one thing, so, to, one thing I thought was so very clever of Mr. Annandale was when yeah. Gnosis is talking him into doing this ritual and he mentions, you know, the father will give us gifts. And right when he said gifts, I was like, well, hold on a minute. I already know what this means. Can we define gifts? <laughs> I already know what this means. So it's like, so he's talking about, you know, the Nurgle father. Most that's I, I, I didn't know about Rodigus, but that's what I was thinking of. And then I'm like, wait a second, hold on. So I actually flipped back to when Gnosis first talks to him because he gives him this blessing, and he, he says the his father. father will make it rain. But you know, I at the time I didn't think anything of it because you hear them call the emperor, you know, our father. You know, especially if you're from a Christian background, you think of God and your father in heaven and all that. Didn't think anything of it. So, you know, it's almost kind of battle stations like to me so to go back and be like, oh, yeah, he'd already planted those seeds. Early that on. actually, as soon as he said father, I was like, oh, oh, they don't often refer like the sisters often refer to him as father. But I was like, oh, not a lot of people refer to this man as their father. So my first thought, like I was looking at it and I was like, excuse you, are you a Primark? Because that's the only person who gets to call him dad. <laughs> um, and you are not said Robert, that, sir. You are not Robbie Bobby, sir. <laughs> You're not even me. But I'm looking at it like, oh, that's not good. But again, and I think you touched on this a little bit. And there is that 
there's not only an ignorance to the warp and demons, but there's this very anti-knowledge mentality. Mm -hmm. So when Moreno is like, I don't know what this is. I've never seen anything like this. And Ambrose, when he's in that morgue, like looking in that morgue as he starts looking through, right? And he's like, oh, these are all Lorenzo's cronies, right? Well, because they would have had access to him as he was sick. But he never, never once is he like, this is so weird. Like, what would have caused this? Like, that would have been an Inquisitor's job, right? To take a step back and be like, how is this, how is this spreading? What are we looking at? And they he, just automatically went in panic. He starts to, because he says, he, he's like, how is it so selective? He started to go down that route, but then gets distracted. And then he just falls back on, oh, it's corruption. Mm-hmm. Clearly. And I think there's something really interesting here about Ambrose's journeys and what it says about the pitfalls of righteousness in the Warhammer 40k universe. We've talked about this a lot before, how one guy in a position of power who is convinced that he is right can do so much damage. Like, so much damage. And there's a couple of things going on here. One is his conviction. Oh, this is corruption. This is this is not a sickness. This is corruption. And on one hand, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, there is corruption But also here. no. Like, right. these, these people were probably not corrupt before they got sick. But oh, the warp is definitely at work here, darling. And you're helping it. Just, just throwing that out there, buddy. Nothing is sadder than doing the work, doing work in the emperor's name, and you're not doing the emperor's work at all. I, when the, I actually wrote yeah. down page one twenty four. I was like, no, Ambrose, no, because <laughs> I saw exactly what was, and that was when he was starting to talk about these are my people. I have my purpose. I am here to save them. I was like, I know exactly what this is. And actually, I wrote down one of my favorite quotes from a movie that horrified me and I've only seen once and I'll never watch it again. Vanity. It's my favorite sin. Uh, good times. Yeah. <laughs> that one? <laughs> that one horrified you? Uh, uh, yeah. Like, I, not, I can't. I can't with that movie. Like, it was very good. It was very well done. It made its point very well. I will never watch it again. That's fair. <laughs> I, have a few, I have a few I have a few movies like that. Not that one, though. Um, but, yes. And that's why I think that there was at his heart. Because remember, he kind of starts that in the beginning where he's like, oh, they're listening to me. No, 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 they're not listening to me. They're listening to the emperor through me, mm-hmm. right? But he already starts wrestling with that in the beginning. And then sure enough, as we get to the end, you're absolutely right. And I noticed that too, where I was like, oh, okay. So I actually felt really bad for him in the beginning because Nosos is so clearly, clearly like, you know, manipulating him and doing the warp thing. And so I felt really bad for Ambrose because I was like, oh, honey, you're just trying to do the right thing. That scene right there, I was like, oh, <laughs> nah, I don't feel sorry for you anymore. You had this in you to begin with. There was there was a there was a kink there. And you Yeah. Yeah. 
that was and i think again i think when you have this unquestioning wavering faith in the emperor and you don't like anything else is heresy to even like question no it can I mean, lead you down well yeah i mean you're you're absolutely right right with that and it was really for me when i was like there's no hope for this guy anymore it is when they are destroying that huge hab they said it was like half a mile long mm-hmm. and wide and as it's burning and they're shooting the people trying to escape he is pointing to it and yelling, doing the, you know, the typical preacher of the fire and damnation, the fire and brimstone and damnation all coming down. Mm-hmm. It's like, you've gone, you've lost it. Anytime we've ever seen a, a priest, a preacher, hell, the Space Marines chaplain go down that road, it's never, never a good thing. And actually, James Swallow actually wrote that in his uh, Blood Angels, Blood Angels series. The chaplain was believing that the main character Rafe and his brother had was Sanguinius reborn, not realizing that it was all this Inquisitor who'd been corrupted by Zinch, manipulating everybody. But but then the chaplain was like very resolute. He's like, no, this is Sanguinius reborn and you must bow down to him and you must praise him and not the Emperor because this is the Emperor's son reborn type thing. But it became immediately that. And so that was the mm-hmm. first thing I thought of when he starts, you know, yelling about, you know, I, this is the corruption. See what heresy has wrought. It's like, no, 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 no. You're doing this. This is all you. Like these people, yes, they're all going to die. It's unfortunate. They're, they're all going to die. But they didn't have to go like this. Right. Exactly. And all I could think of as he's sitting there screaming about this, is it just all I can think of is we are all sinners in the hands of an angry God. Right, like this very Calvinist yeah, look. Yeah. Uh-huh. At just and I think and I don't know, like if I were to give him the benefit of the doubt, I would say that maybe at that point he goes so far into denial that he's just like this has to be what it is. Like there's no other rational explanation for this. It has to be heresy, has to be corruption. But I think it really was that arrogance of, I have labeled this corruption. It's getting worse. Oh, it's definitely corruption now because I can't be wrong. Not only that, but I have been in the middle of it and it didn't affect me. Which makes me wonder what could it be that the reason why you didn't get the plague is because the people who did get it were ones that would not have submitted to Nurgle could be that was exactly what i thought actually because i was like oh pumpkin they're the righteous ones you're the corrupt one because again and i know because they have the complete and total ignorance to this they have no idea what's going on he like i think an inquisitor right would have looked at that and been like yeah that guy's the problem when there's oh i'm sorry you say that only one person has survived this mm, go on <laughs> well and an inquisitor to get the heavy flamer i mean if, inquisitor, if an inquisitor or even a sister even a battle oh. sister was there and saw what happened to lorenz forget uh ambrose with what happens to them but just with lorenz they're like okay um we're calling in exterminatus <laughs> may the emperor have mercy on your souls <laughs> 
the planet was dying from the time you opened the cover. Mm-hmm. Like, again, this is the Candyland book. There, there was, it was predetermined. Nobody was getting out of this. Right. At all. Um, because, yeah, this planet was doomed. And I did like the idea where they, they mention it very early on where they're talking about how Lorenz wants to get off the planet. And uh, they're talking about, or yeah, they're talking about it later. I can't remember. I think it is with Lorenz. They're talking about him getting off the planet. And they're like, Rosarius, actually. Oh, it was Rosarius. That's mm-hmm. right. And they're like, nobody's been coming by in two years. Yeah. You guys have been left for dead. Mm-hmm. Because life in the 40K universe is very hard. <laughs> like, and they are pretty quick to cut their losses. Oh, Oh, yeah. Like, oh, I'm sorry. You guys having a drought? It hasn't rained in more than a year and you can't produce anything anymore? Eh, bye, Felicia. Like, we don't need you anymore. You're you're pretty much useless. Good luck. And that, like, and you know that, like, had it started raining naturally um, again and they, yeah, the Imperium would have been back, like, where's our stuff? But we don't really have much use for a planet that's basically dying. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's Again, it's it's pretty hardcore and harsh. What are you gonna do though? Oh, I mean, it's like what Reboot did about Imperium Nihilus. Sorry, y'all. Good luck. <laughs> y'all have Dante though. <laughs> this planet didn't even have Dante. It had a and oh, that's the and thing it I was should have say. because it's a desert planet. It's like his people, <laughs> right? With water that will kill you. I mean, it... but so like that would also be another horrible death. Because what if it's like the flesh terrors who drop down on that planet? Oh, yeah. Oops. Oops. Whoopsie. Um, <laughs> You're here all to of a save sudden. us. Yes, but actually, no. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, the Grey like, Knights. Yeah. 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 That's not going to go well either. No. The Great Knights show um, up on your planet. It's not going to go well for somebody. <laughs> I always think of that scene in Megamind. I wouldn't say saved. More like under new management. <laughs> like, especially if the Great Knights show up. Like, oh yeah, no, you're saved. Totally. Go line up over there. Um, it's not going to be good. They especially, and I think, but again, they would have instantly recognized it, right? And been like, yeah, this is all bad. Especially, we don't know where Gnosis came from, which is actually one of the things I think was kind of nice about this book. And you and I talked about this a lot, and I really do want to give a shout out to it, that this book was like the anti-Stephen King book. Uh, it's it, the anti-The really, Stand, is what it it's is. It's the anti-The Stand, it. It reminds oh, me God, a lot of it. Pet Cemetery in that it had a very short, quick story to tell. There's no needless exposition. There's no like random jaunts into side characters that we don't care about. Um, there's really no fluff or padding in this. Ramble it, flag doesn't show up, you know, so. It's pretty nice too. But like, we didn't have this entire dalliance into these other characters' lives. Nope, this book is about Ambrose fighting a plague. Who, what, when, where, why, how, the end. And even then, there's a lot of stuff that, like, where did Nosos come from? Who is he, really? Not really important. As far as I know, he might have caused the drought. I mean... Right? I mean, we know that chaos plays the long game. 
So, and I do, I do really like. Yeah, where that. are they like, going? Um, <laughs> right, <laughs> like they got nothing but time. <laughs> um, one of the reasons I also compare this to Pet Cemetery is that he never explains in that book how the cemetery works because it's not important to no. the book. So, there's a lot of things in here where I was like, "How? You know what? It's not important." And it kind of adds to the like, "Ooh, ooh, that's like like this guy just showed up out of nowhere." You know, the only thing I wanted explained was the plague i didn't want to i didn't want it like how maybe i did but it's hard to explain the reason for it and when i find out it's you know nurgle i'm good that's all i really needed yeah pretty much doesn't matter to Um, me like how it spread if it was the ashes or if it was something else it doesn't matter to me no and that i i appreciate a good horror story any story really but especially a good horror story that can just cut to the chase here's here's the thing that happened and Mm -hmm. we're done and um we'll talk more about that particular comparison in a second here but here's the question that i have so in the beginning when moreno gets sick and uh some of the cronies when he's in that morgue scene remember she looks at him and she's like are you happy yeah that was so weird that was weird and remember that all of Lorenz's cronies were like I think the exact phrase was like we're spitting violent hatred at him despite dying like they're all looking accusingly at him do you think they knew what was up do you think they were just assuming that like oh you've poisoned all of us to get rid of Lorenz possibly like I don't think that they knew you know that he inadvertently let Gnosis curse everybody right. I, I don't think that you know that they got the whole memo mm-hmm. but um, but you know but they talked about you know Morano she was loyal to the cardinal because he mm-hmm. was the cardinal and she was not right happy. she was more loyal to the figure, figure. not necessarily the, the dude the title she's loyal to the title mm-hmm. and I think that she saw Ambrose stepping up a little too quickly even though they were following proper protocol Yes. But everybody knew that he disagreed with Lorenz. And right. he was just a little too Johnny on the spot. And I, and that's again goes back to me thinking there was always this ambitious core to him. Because remember, he runs down there. And as soon as he sees Rosarius isn't in there, he's like, okay, good. And he kind of gloats a little bit when Rosarius yeah, comes into Lorenz's room. He's kind of like. Yeah, he's a. Uh... As much as he was saying that he didn't really like the politics that Rosarius and Lorenz were making him play, he played into it pretty well. And maybe that's just part pretty of well. being, being in the ecclesiarchy. Because he was, whether he realizes it or not, he was playing his own game by being out there with the people, being the face out there when Lorenz was locked, you know, hiding away mm-hmm. in his little cloister. Uh, I mean, one thing I thought was very interesting near the beginning, near the beginning of the book was when he was talking about the lies he tells himself. And mm-hmm. that and about halfway through the book, I was like, you know, that part stuck with me and it made me realize there was a reason he was talking about the lies he tells himself because that's what he's constantly doing. You know, that very he's, much so. 
I mean, do I believe he actually did want that he did go survey the planet? Because um, he wanted to see what was going on and he was really worried about everybody. Oh, I, absolutely. Do I believe he cared? Absolutely. He cared about the people more than Lorenz did? Yes, 100%. But he's still playing that political game of the people like me. Because he even talked about it. He talked about his sermons. That they could tell the difference when he was force-fed a sermon versus when he talked to them. Yes. So he, he, he's already kind of playing that. And when he going after Rosarius the way that he did without even having any proof that it was had mm-hmm. anything to do with him. And I remember hearing on this one, it was a kid's show, and they were saying, you know, if you're constantly thinking it's this one person, you might overlook who the real killer is. Which is exactly 100% what happened. Very much so. And... Yes, they really, he, and that was one of the things that I really liked because sometimes in books you'll see, and this happens a lot of the times in horror novels, where you'll see a character all of a sudden change on a dime to become this very arrogant, very self-centered character. They, they kind of, he did a really good job of establishing that this guy isn't, as humble Mm -hmm. as he pretends to be he's not as removed from it there is this kind of and as you said like i just and i think it's a nature of it and i say this about politics like all the time and i think the show veep i i I refuse to believe that show is not a documentary um and it's hysterical but like i don't think you can get to a certain level in politics in real life without like having a certain level of arrogance and douchebaggery. And I absolutely believe that about the ecclesiarchy. Like you have to have a little bit of political knowledge. You have to have a little bit of all of these things, right? These bad qualities that are there to even get that high and far. Even if your planet's dying, you don't make it to Archdeacon without knowing how to play the game a little bit. You don't get, you don't get to the fat priesthood without working your way there pretty much exactly like he knows the and he was also very savvy to the game right like he could recognize the game and he could recognize like oh well lorenz is pumping me through these speeches because he wants to focus on this thing right so like he recognized where the pieces were moving so it tells you that he was pretty savvy to it and he was so arrogant to think that he was above all that that was the saddest part which is, you know, why so above it played into, you know, made me think of Devil's Advocate, Vanity. It's got to be my favorite sin. I really don't like that movie, if we're being honest right now. Um, But, so, here's the thing. What happens next with this? Because here's something very interesting that they... So, one of my favorite entry stories into the Warhammer 40k genre is actually written by David Annandale too and it's in that, I know I mention this all the time, but it's in that Wicked and the Damned. He has a story about a priest who is in love with a woman and the difference is that his faith is kind of faltering and he says to her like, well, what if I don't continue to be a priest? What if like just you and I go away somewhere? And of course she's like, oh my God, what are you saying? Right? And it kind of, there's this, he definitely like, David Andale likes that theme of these guys wanting something that they can't really have, which I think is a very interesting theme within Warhammer 40k in general, because again, 
that's all the crack in the door that chaos needs. Oh, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Did you want something? Right. Because I can help it. with that. Just saying. I can help with that. Exactly. And so here's the thing that I wonder, and this is why the pet cemetery thing was so apt as well. Like in the end, like remember when he's killing her family, he even says he's like, it's all for her. Right. Like on one hand, mm-hmm she's the sacrifice like I have to do this awful horrible thing and she has to witness it but it's okay because she's gonna live and I'm gonna save her so is this like pet cemetery like is Beth are Bethia and Ambrose now gonna become the king and queen of Plaguelandia well I mean when I finished the book I texted you the last line of pet cemetery that was how you knew I finished because that was all darling. I could think. That was all I could think of. Darling. And a voice it filled said. with dirt. <laughs> I That is easily one of the greatest last lines to any of his books. And yes, and the voice filled with dirt. Darling. And of course, so and for... this one, forgive you, but you gave me life. Oh, God, I just got chills all over again. Just, no, just... <laughs> Her body squirmed as if her skin were filled with snakes. But you gave me life. And then she stirred. So here's the question first off. And so also her voice was slurred. It thrummed with tiny wings. Mm -hmm. She's not alive. Not in... uh... (laughs) Not in the way you mean. (laughs) (laughs) So... Not in the way that the deacon is. For now. Is it Bethia? Or is this some demon? I don't know. I go back and forth on this. I don't like, know if it's a demon, but almost like a cultist. You know, like just one of the Nurgle worshippers now. Right. Like, is this some warp entity that comes out? No, but you've given me life. Right? Like you birthed me. And I kind of wondered about that. Like I actually expected that to be where the demon came out. Like, um, remember in uh, shroud of night when that guy turns into the keeper of secrets, um, I very much expected that or in, uh, the second plague war book where that guy just oh. like melts down right? so that they could have the little messenger conversation. And Typhus is just like, this is As really, one does. really interesting. I'm just going to sit I here love, and watch this. <laughs> I love that scene. Because the whole time Typhus is like, this is fascinating. <laughs> no, it's not, son. It's that really awful. The soldier was still alive. Oh, my God. So awful. So, like, was it something like that? Where is, like, this warp entity now that's in Bethia? And you just gave me life, my friend. Or is it really partially her and now she as you said she is now fully on board the Nurgle train well because actually I was thinking of I don't remember the guy's name but that poor imperial guardsman that the that Vorks removed his heart and kept it in a pouch yeah I was kind of thinking that she was now like that you know just one of the minions that's so bad. But again, that guy still had some of his sentience, though. And some of what made him Camp- Captain Danvers? Captain, no. Something like that, though. Captain something. Not Captain we Marvel. Were... Shut up. <laughs> as soon as I said that, I was like, no. <laughs> it is. 
it is either Kamala Khan or Carol. Um, <laughs> anyways, it was something like that, though. Now I'm going to have to look this up later. But anyways, the idea that it's still partially him, but different. That's kind like, of... So now, again, I ask again, what happens next? Oh, there's not a happy ending for anybody. Either. I don't I don't know. Like, do they both just become king and queen of Plaglandia? And like, I honestly think he kills himself. But does that last? We already saw the dead rise from their graves in this book as was. So does he kill yeah, but, himself but and then like mean... immediately later he's back up full of snakes? Yeah, but I don't know or if those he's... were people back to life or they were just reanimated. Does that make right. sense? Right. No, that totally makes sense. And that could be what happens to him, but I believe he kills himself. Oh, I think so. But does he also look at this as the chance to be with his love? Is it his love anymore though? You guys, I, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I really kind of like the idea of him just being like, this is fine. And then becoming like these plague cultists that just help tend Nurgle's garden. It, like, if you think about it, it's like a very odd happily ever after for War, like a very Warhammer 40k happily ever after. <laughs> sure. Just saying. <laughs> I want somebody on the chaos side to have a happily ever after. Okay. And Septimus and Octavia got robbed. Okay. So now, but by default, by being on chaos, you're not supposed to get your happy ending. I'm just saying that romance can exist I on mean, the chaos you, side of line too. You barely get a happy ending on the Imperial side. Yes. But the closest we had was in uh, Knights of McCrag. And even then, that was really a sad thing because his mind was half gone. Well, and they were like, so the orcs are going to come back? Yeah, you know that? Yeah. So <laughs> we'll have a few years before the wah comes through. Um, which is pretty much, yeah, like the happiest ending you could imagine. Hmm. Um, I guess I kind of like the idea that maybe... Somewhere, chaos does kind of, sort of, in a like in a monkey's paw sort of way, grant your wish. Like I just really want to be able to be with the woman I love. Granted, but you're both now kind of reanimated, like warp creatures, and you rule you rule Rodicus's planet together. Not well, nice. I mean, Apocalypse kind of had that. You know, they had those uh, uh, cultists had that kiss and she walked away and then the Raven Guard swooped down and killed him. So at least they had that moment, you know? That's more than what they would have had normally. See? See? I'm just saying, I kind of, like, in a really weird way, like, I got to the end of the book and I was like, well, I hope they have a really nice life together <laughs> on this horrible, awful planet. And I hope that some part of him occasionally is looking out of his eyeballs thinking, wow, did I back the wrong horse? <laughs> Like, but maybe they won't because they're together. You know, it's one of those that uh, I listen to, like a lot of true crime pro- podcasts, mostly thanks to Jen. But like, I've gotten into yeah, some like, like cult podcasts, and they and they talk about when they're out, 
all the red flags that they should have seen that we right. on the outside are like, why didn't you see that? Didn't you see this? That's kind of what this, kind of what this is. There's all these red flags. Very much so. Very much so. Like there were all these signs. The guy that just shows up and disappears oh, nowhere. Like you don't. And then you never this see guy? him again. And then he takes you to this part of the archive that you've never been to before through an invisible wall. I mean, it's like a clearly. And as soon as he walks in there, he gets that like, "Whoa, danger, Will Robinson." Like, because remember, he's like, oh, it smells bad. Like, this is not right. But then again, that arrogance and that curiosity of, but I could save the planet. Just takes over. And you find yourself reading. And I do like when he's reading it and he's like, this is really not the language typically used within the ecclesiarchy. But maybe it's just old. But like, he does have that moment of different. Mm -hmm. And, uh. That's because it wasn't written in the original Colchesian. Saying. Their Bible's a lie. It might have been. I, mean, I don't think so. This didn't strike me as having Lorgar's flair to it. <laughs> like, when you look at the words to it, like, it even feels wrong as you read it, even for us, right? Where you're like, mm, this is, this is not normal what was the one uh yeah here our prayer rain father oh rodigus um like but right, that right there that right there how is that not a red flag rain father right well okay so now this guy would have no way of knowing this <laughs> this is player knowledge not character knowledge that they talk about how the emperor is worshipped differently on different planets, right? So, like, agricultural planets do very much picture him as, like, this agricultural god, where instead of having the sword, he has, like, a scythe, right? Because he's helping you harvest the wheat. Um, but he wouldn't have known that. But they do talk about how he takes different guises. So, if you're having in a planet that's having drought, maybe Rainfather doesn't seem out of there. But, oh, I closed the book after I was looking for that one passage, but where it talks about like um, how thou crownest, and you're like, this is not, um, this is this, thou crownest our hopes with abundance, and thy paths drop fatness. Yeah, not even the King James version is that weird. No, this is some weird shit. Like <laughs> the fatness, the fatness. Well, again, because you know. Nurgle, right? Well, obviously. He's got some weird... He's got some weird things about him. Yeah, no. Just saying. I, there was too many red flags. And, I, and not... Yes, there was some, you know, player knowledge. There was some character knowledge there, too, that he just chose. Like, we learned all these cults... These people who leave cults... There's these red flags that they choose to they ignore. They choose to ignore because they want it. And very similarly, right? Like when you listen to, I think we've both listened to a couple of the same podcasts about cults. There is this need to belong mm -hmm. or this desire for something. And I think Ambrose definitely had all kinds of desires. Some good, some selfish. And chaos is just, again, just all too happy. And I think I really... Like, in some ways, this book really felt like a cautionary tale. 
Right. Uh, <laughs> You're but, saying that this could have been a Canterbury tale? <laughs> like the grossest one ever. I don't know. Some of those were pretty nasty. Yeah, but not like... So I was really disappointed that the pages weren't colored because that's really my jam on the horror line. But then you saw these little boys. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, that'll do. I don't think our next book is going to have flies in it. And I'm really glad that we read. Now, this was not a light book in terms of like... Because we spent a lot of time going, ew, gross, gnarly. Um, But it it was a nice read. Before we dive into our next book, which I think is going to be a little heavier in terms, and mine is in transit still. In terms of thickness, yeah. Oh, it was really nice to have a breezy yeah. read. We should have saved this for the beach. Maybe this would have been our beach read. That's three hundred and fifty pages. It's not terrible. It is a little bigger, but I. We're really excited. This is a book that's more than 10 years in the making. Penitent. Super excited to see what happens with Beckwin as she plays the worst game of would you rather ever. <laughs> would you rather trust Eisenhorn or Ravener? I'll go with neither, Bob. That's the safest choice. <laughs> exactly. It's going to be the end of war game. This is like the safest choice is not to play. How about a nice game of chess? Because I'm, I'm really excited for this book too. Because I think we're both going in on different teams. Oh well, yeah, we've already drawn our lines in the sand, like in Twilight. I am 100% Team Ravner, which is shocking. Still, it's not surprising. I'm Team Eisenhorn. Team Heretic. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> saying anyway team okay want to take us out this is gonna be interesting because we just talked about the arrogance of being righteous and that's what ravener is doing also eisenhorn who is still fighting a war that he needs to retire from it was a metaphor so does ravener (sighs) take us out carrie (laughs) this is gonna be fun if not Even if we don't enjoy the book, it'll be fun taking sides. I'm so excited. (laughs) It'll be a good time. So thank you all so much for joining us for this episode. The Warhammer 40k Book Club with our Deacon of Wounds by David Annandale. Be stay tuned for our next book, which is going to be Penitent. Every time I say this, I keep thinking of Temple of Doom. No, not Temple of Doom, but the last crusade of the penitent man will pass. It's all I can think of. (laughs) the name actually yep so and it is by dan abnett so but we are an unofficial book club and not affiliated with the black library or any of its affiliates you can find both the vidcast and podcast on our website wh40kbookclub.com if you like this episode please like subscribe give a review and all those things to the vidcast on youtube or the podcast on anywhere you get podcasts Don't forget, we also have a Patreon where we offer two different tiers of contents for your viewing and listening pleasure. You can learn more about that at patreon.com slash wh40kbookclub. Our site also has articles about our adventures and reading other Warhammer 40k books and short stories outside of the book club books. So please stay a while and read from a crack. I'm still off areas. 
I still have shirt shirts. Get you some. of the Warhammer 40k book club is hosted by Jen Bozier and me. Recording and editing of both the vidcast and podcast were done by me. The book club questions and discussion format were done by Jen, and all of our music is by Jingle Punks. The Warhammer 40k book club is a Warhammer LLC production. This is a Voxcast that even he, Cato Sicarius, would approve.